Um, so with that, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. A little bit of quick context here as we read this passage. Um, Jesus is in uh, Passion Week. This is the very last week of his life. Um, he's about two days away from being arrested and then killed um, the next day. Uh, we've been covering the very beginning of Passion Week, and Jesus is already going about and, and um, having a lot of, uh, or I guess a series of confrontations with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees, with the scribes, with the chief priests. Um, tonight is going to be a continuation um, of that, that, those series of confrontations. Um, so let's read now the passage before us. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1, and he's talking to, the, once again, the religious leaders and all of the people in the temple that week. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get, some, get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so, and, and he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent to him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that for this uh, for this next hour as we dive into your word, into this book of Mark, we pray that you would bless our time. We pray that you would give us clarity of mind and for me clarity of speech as I explain the truths that are found in this parable. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So one of the new things that I had to learn to do this past year was uh, how to take care of a lawn. Um, you see, growing up in San Francisco, in my backyard was concrete, right? The only plants that we had there were weeds that we wanted to get rid of. Uh, so when my wife and I, we bought our house last year, um, lawn care was completely new. And our lawn was not in great shape, but of course for me, I wanted that lawn to, to look nice, right? <laughs> a lawn that I could um, enjoy at home. Um, but I had to learn a lot, and there was a lot of work to get that lawn ready for seed. Uh, first thing when we moved in, we realized immediately that the pipes, the sprinkler pipes, were actually broken. And so every time you turn it on, there would be huge puddles in our lawn, right? And so I had to go pay someone to go and fix that. 
And then after they fixed the pipes, I realized actually our sprinkler heads were also broken. And so I had to go learn how to replace those and buy those and learn about all the different valves and everything that goes on with those heads. And then I actually had to learn about grass, the different varieties of grass. I had to research what I thought were, would be the best grass for my lawn. And finally, the day came where I could actually start working on the lawn. Um, but there was a bunch of random plants and random dirt around, and so I actually had to clear off the vegetation. The soil was rock hard, and so I had to plow that soil myself, and all I had were my bare hands and a shovel and a rake, and that's what I did. I had to buy a bunch of dirt from Home Depot, and I lugged that myself, of course, with my car. But I lugged it over to my lawn and spread that all over the lawn. And after all of that work, I was finally ready to sow the seeds. So I spread those seeds out, I put some dirt over it, and then I started to water. And then, of course, I had to wait. I had to be patient and wait so that I could finally see the fruit of my labor. And I remember going out each day, and I would crouch down in the lawn or by the lawn and hope that I would see these seeds germinate and really hope that I would see those little blades of grass finally coming up. But I had to be patient. I had to wait for weeks uh, for that to happen. And, of course, eventually, after much waiting, it finally happened, and my grass finally grew, and it was green, and I was very happy to enjoy that. Well, in our parable today, um, it's about a man who plants a vineyard. And just like me, when I planted my lawn, all he wanted to do was to share in some of the fruits of that vineyard. He prepared the soil, and then he hired tenants to take care of his, uh, of his vineyard. But despite all of the work that the owner put in, all of the investment, time, and money he put in to his vineyard, when it came time to enjoy that fruit, the tenants met him with hostility and violence. And, but despite this hostility, despite not receiving any fruit, this man remained patient, waiting and waiting and hoping that one day the tenants would change and that he would receive some of the fruit from his vineyard. This parable, we're going to learn, is actually an allegory of the history between Israel and God. And I'll highlight how God remained patient with this people, with this wicked nation of Israel and the religious leaders, despite never seeing lasting fruit. Um, but as we do that, right, and once again, this parable is primarily about God and Israel, but at the same time, I do want to draw out general principles about God's patience from this parable. And so we're going to study, right, we're going to study two principles about God's patience that should cause you to repent now from your sins. Once again, two principles about God's patience that should cause you to re repent now from your sins. Before we get into these principles, I first want to reread uh, re the parable and come to a good understanding of the story first, and then we'll explain the allegory and we'll dive into these principles. So first, the parable itself. Once again, this parable takes place during uh, Passion Week. It's Jesus is uh, in the last few days of his life. And the escalation and the hostility between him and the religious leaders is at an all-time high. Uh, the religious leaders already know that they want to arrest and kill Jesus. And so they're spending this week plotting to find the best opportunity to arrest and kill him. 
Of course, Jesus, being God and having studied the scripture, he knows that his time is about to end, and we remember that actually he foretold his death at the hands of the religious leaders to his disciples three times before. And so Jesus, well aware of this hostility, well aware of the intent of the religious leaders, um, he nonetheless goes on the offensive here. He actually tells a series of three parables. Uh, Only one of them is recorded here in Mark. Yeah, all three of them are actually recorded in Matthew. Uh, The first one is the parable of the two sons. The third parable is the parable of the wedding feast. And both of those are found in Matthew 21. But for us tonight, Mark has recorded that second parable, the parable of the wicked tenants. And this is arguably the most important of the three parables that he gave that day um, because it's actually found in all three of the synoptic gospels, both in Mark 21, or excuse me, Matthew 21, Mark 12, and then Luke 20. And so this is a prominent and significant parable that he did to indict and to condemn the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that time. As we will read and as you heard as we read earlier, this is actually an outrageous story. Uh, it's one that's shocking on many levels. And it's so shocking and um, so pointed at the very end, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they actually realize that this is not just a shocking story, but it's a story about them. So let's get started in verse one, I'll read it again. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country story starts off pretty normally. A man, or sometimes I'll refer to him as the owner or the master, this man planted a vineyard. Presumably, he either already had this land or he had to go out and purchase the land for this vineyard. And he's going about trying to start a new business, right? He wants to grow grapes and turn that into wine. And so he has to prepare the soil, everything that I talked about earlier, right? Clearing off all the vegetation, plowing the soil, and he has to finally plant those But at the same time, I know that there's a few more details here. It says that he built a fence around it, and he built a tower, right? That fence and that tower is actually used for protection. Uh, The fence was there so that wild game would not come in and eat his grapes, and also wild people, right? People outside, they wouldn't come in and steal his grapes. Uh, The tower was built so that people could be on the lookout and look at if there's any looming threats on the horizon, and so that they can act accordingly and protect this vineyard. And then lastly, this man also dug a pit for the wine press. Back in that day, in order to make wine, they actually dug out these huge vats, these huge huge wine presses, and during the time of harvest, they would pick the grapes, they would harvest those grapes, they would throw it into this huge pit, and then they would stomp on it, right, to make wine, to squeeze out that grape juice and turn it into wine. And so, right, in this first verse, we already see that this man is serious about getting the fruit from his vineyard, right? He planted the soil, he provided infrastructure in this wine press, and he also protected it as best as he could. He wanted to enjoy the fruit of his labor, the fruit of his, or the return on his investment. At the end, very end of verse 1, we see that he actually leases out this land, this vineyard, to tenants um, because he was going on a long journey, a journey to a different country. Um, This was pretty common back in that day uh, where a rich man would lease out his land to to tenants and they would have some contract where, you know, pretty much like what we have today, if you sign a lease, there's a contract for rent to be paid on a certain time. 
Um, and it was the same for them then. Uh, these tenants, they would get to enjoy this vineyard. They would grow the grapes. They would make the wine. They could sell it for profit. And then they would have to portion out some of that fruit or some of that money out to the owner for their payment of rent. So as we come to the end of verse 1, it's a very simple beginning. A man has a vineyard and he leased it out to tenants. But almost immediately, this story takes a twist. Right? Verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant, that's the owner or the master, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So still in normal mode here, right, where he's sending out a servant to collect his rent, to collect that fruit of the vineyard. Then here comes the twist. Verse 3, and they, the tenants, took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Instead of paying their contractual obligation, they see this servant and they beat him up. That's shocking. This word for beat up is actually used for Jesus himself when he is flogged right before he's crucified. This word is also used to describe the apostles when they are persecuted in the book of Acts. And it's also used about Jews in the tribulation time when they stand before kings and rulers. And so this word for beat up that we see here, it's actually a severe beating. It's a beating that would result certainly in bruises and scrapes and cuts, but perhaps also broken bones and concussions. This is a serious beating. And this rebellion against the master, against the owner, is absolutely shocking. But that's just the beginning. We read on, verse 4. And he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. The master sends another servant, right? After sending this first servant and he comes back with broken bones and bruises all over his body, he sends a second one. And they escalate it even further. They said they, it says that they struck him on the head. Literally means that they bashed his head in. They took clubs or whatever they had, all the tools, and they bashed his head in. And it says they treated him shamefully. And we're not exactly sure what that word shamefully refers to, but it's safe to say that this was an escalation in hostility against the servants. And so you would think that that would be enough, right? But there's more. The master sends a third servant. Verse 5, he says, he sent another, and him they killed. The owner sends yet a third servant, and this one, they escalate as much as they can, and they murder him. This is outrageous. This is shocking. And remember what they're fighting against. They simply don't want to pay rent. Now, how ridiculous is that? And how outrageous is this rebellion? So far, I've been focused on how outrageous this rebellion is, this response by the servant, or excuse me, by the tenants to rebel against the owner. But as the story continues, things kind of turn, or at least they turn when I read this passage, where I see the outrageous acts by the tenants, but then I also start to look at the owner and I see how outrageous his actions are. You would think from the very first servant, when this servant was beat up and came back bruised with broken bones, you would think that the master would come back in vengeance, that he would have none of it, that he would kick out these tenants from his vineyard. But he doesn't do that. He sends a second servant. He sends a third servant. And then in verse 5, there's even more. 
in the middle of verse 5, it says, And so with many others. Master kept sending servant after servant, and it says, Some they beat, and some they killed. And so the man did not stop at one, at two, or three servants, but he sent many, one after another, over and over and over and over and over again. And remember, this owner, he was likely a rich man. He had the funds to purchase a plot of land, and so that likely means that he was very wealthy. And by the text and how this is written, it seems like that he sent every single servant he had, much more than three servants, but all the servants in his that, that he could, he sent them over and over and over. This type of, it's hard to call it, but it's the owner's patience with these tenants. He's patient with them. He's long-suffering. But it's not a normal type of patience. It's an outrageous patience. It's a shocking patience. It's incomprehensible. It's illogical. It's even reckless, the patience of this owner for fruit. Once again, you think that after all of his servants were beat or killed, that would be it. But of course, there's one more. All of his servants are gone and out of the picture, and we finally get to verse 6. It says, he, still, he had still one other, a beloved son. Shocking that he would even bring up his own son to go out to the tenants. And notice here that it's a beloved son. It's not some son that he wants to go and teach a lesson, right? This is a son that he loves, that he cares about, that he would, yeah, that he would, that he would care and that he would be angry if anything bad were to happen to him. But still this owner, this patient, this recklessly patient owner, he says, finally, or excuse me, finally, it says the text, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Hold up. The same tenants who killed or beat up every single one of his servants, this owner actually would suggest that these tenants would respect his son? He can't be serious. But that's what the owner does. He displays this incomprehensible patience. And so what happens next? It's pretty predictable. Verse 7 says, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. See, with the son, it's a little different. This is actually the first time that the tenants say anything in this parable. And it's a conspiracy. They conspire to kill this son. They recognize they know who he is, that he's not just a servant. He's just not just a paid messenger by the owner. This is the son. This is the heir. And they make this crazy assumption that if they kill the son, that they will get this man's inheritance. They'll get this vineyard, the one that they are, that they are making a mockery of. They said, if we kill the heir... We get to inherit this vineyard, so let's go and kill him. And that's exactly what they do. They take him, they murder him in his own vineyard, and they throw out his lifeless, his bloody body outside of the vineyard. Total disrespect. And so 
We come to the very end in, of the parable in verse 9. And now Jesus, right, he's actually done with the story, and now he looks out into the crowd. Remember, those religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders of the people, and all of those in the temple that day, he asked this question. He asked, what will the owner of the vineyard do? In parallel passages, it actually tells us that the crowd actually answered this question that Jesus gives. In Matthew 21, verse 41, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. See, the people, they answer. And Jesus, in, in Mark, we see that Jesus affirms their answer. Back to Mark verse 9, it says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. See, at this point, with the death of his son, the murder of his son, this outrageous patience of the owner is at its end. Just as the Pharisees and the chief priests shouted out that he will put those wretches to a miserable death, Jesus says that's exactly what he'll do. The owner will come, enact his vengeance, and put an end to these tenants and give the land to others. I personally think that it was in this moment Right, when the chief priests and the Pharisees were answering back Jesus' questions uh, about what the owner of the vineyard would do, I think it was in this moment that they actually understood the parable. They understood that this was not just a, a story, a shocking story, but they, as they said those words and Jesus responded, I believe that it was at this point that the Pharisees realized that Jesus was actually talking about them that the Pharisees, the elders of the people, that they were these wicked tenants. And they were the one killing the master's servants. And so now we're going to go back and we're going to understand this allegory more. And we're going to return to the very beginning when I said that we're going to learn about two principles about God's patience that should cause you to repent now from your sins. We're going to break down the, this allegory more, but the very first principle we're going to learn is that God's patience towards sinners is incomprehensible. God's patience towards sinners is incomprehensible. As I've been alluding to, par parables are allegories. Um, that means that the characters or even objects within these parables, it often represents real people, represents God, uh, or it can represent groups of people. And so that's exactly what we see here in this parable. And so let me break it down what each of these major characters are. Uh, the owner, the man, um, that's of course, that's God the Father. The vineyard, this is the kingdom uh, of God. Um, at first, this is the kingdom of Israel. And we see that actually in Luke where it's, uh, Jesus identifies it directly, that the vineyard is the kingdom of God. The tenants, as I mentioned before, these are the, the corrupt religious leaders of Israel both in that current day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, um, but it's also the religious leaders both in, the his, uh, in, in, in history, right, throughout all of Israel's history. The servants, the good servants of the master, these are prophets, priests, faithful men and women of God who represented God and spoke to Israel. And of course, the son is Jesus Christ himself. 
And so now with the identification of all of these symbols within the story, let's learn about this first principle, about God's patience. You see, God, he provided the religious leaders everything they needed for success. Right, just as that man, he provided the wine press, the fence, the tower, the very land itself. God did the same for his nation of Israel. He provided the, or he, God is, was the one who redeemed this people from slavery in Egypt. He gave them the law to teach them how to live. He gave them a land, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And he also gave them divine protection from all of the nations around them. You see, Israel they had everything that they needed for success. The religious leaders throughout the generations, they had everything they needed. And God rightfully expected Israel to bear fruit and to live a life of righteousness and to honor God. God had done everything he could to help them. But of course, if you know about the Old Testament history, Israel never had any lasting fruit. Generation after generation, the leaders of the people of Israel, they continue to rebel. And as a side note, this is actually what we're learning about in Adult One Sunday School in our Old Testament survey. So please come on Sunday. You can learn more about this. Uh, but as you read the Old Testament, especially in the books of history, it seems like there's a pattern where Israel, they fall into sin. God sends a prophet. Sometimes they listen to them for one generation, but they return back to their sin. For other prophets, they despise those prophets. They persecute those prophets. They put them in jail. They put them in, in the ground, in, in holes in the ground, or they even murder him. But despite this hostility, despite this, these outrageous acts that the religious leaders committed against God's servants, God was patient. God was patient in incomprehensible ways because God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger after messenger. And just like the man who owned that vineyard, it didn't make any sense. After the first prophet whom the people rejected, God should have rejected his people outright and left them for dead. That's what he should have done. That's, what any, that's the logical decision to make. But as we see, God's patience is truly incomprehensible. And so for generations and generations, God remained patient with Israel, and he kept them as his chosen people until our passage today in the time of Christ. And as we understand this patience, God's patience with Israel, once again, even though this parable is primarily an allegory about Israel and God, I still see the application towards us. Because God's incomprehensible patience reminds me a whole lot about myself. Um, you see, I grew up in a Christian household. Uh, I grew up in church from the very first day, or maybe not the first day I was born, but a couple weeks after that, right, I was in church. I also went to a Christian school from kindergarten through eighth grade. And so I heard the gospel hundreds, not even hundreds, thousands upon thousands of times. I heard about my own sin, how I needed a Savior to save me from those sins, and I learned about how Christ was that Savior who died for me. I learned about it over and over and over and over and over again. But each time, did I repent? Maybe I said the right words. Maybe I knew the right Sunday school answers. But in my heart, 
I didn't truly repent. I continued to live my life in pride and in secret sin, and I continued my rejection over and over. But God was patient with me. God was patient with me in ways that doesn't make any sense. And he allowed me enough time, and he gave the the gift of the Holy Spirit to open my eyes and my heart to Christ. And it's true for you. If you're a Christian today, if you've repented of your sins, it's because of God's patience. Each one of us he created in his image, and he gave you life and breath and every good thing that you have, that you have. But you turn to your own sin. You rebelled against your creator and you sinned. And for some of you, just like me, you heard the gospel hundreds, perhaps thousands of times growing up. The very first time you sinned, God should have just sent you to hell right then and there. But he was patient with you. And despite every single time you heard the gospel, every single time you sinned, every single opportunity you had to respond in repentance, you continued to reject him over and over again. That is until that great day when God, through the Holy Spirit, opened your eyes to see your own sin and your need for Christ. You saw the beauty of Christ, how he lived the life that you could not live and how he honored God every single second of each day. And you also saw that he sacrificed his life, he spilled his own blood to take away your sins. And you repented that day, you believed and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And all of that only happened because of God's patience. God's patience with you. He was patient with Israel, as we see in this parable throughout all of the generations since Israel existed, and remains patient until this day. If you're not a believer in Christ, and you're still in your sins, understand that God is being patient with you and is calling you to repentance tonight. But let's keep going. That's the first principle, that God's patience towards sinners is incomprehensible. But now let's turn to principle number two. God's patience will end, and judgment will follow. God's patience will end, and judgment will follow. Going back up to verse 7, it says, But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And then they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Remember, during this week, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they were already conspiring against Jesus, and they desired to kill him. And so as they read these words, this is a striking parallel to what they were doing that very week. Remember, these tenants, they had this outrageous claim that if they killed the son, that they would inherit the vineyard. And the Pharisees had the same outrageous thought in, our, or in the New Testament. You see, they killed Jesus because they were jealous of him. They saw his divine anointing. They saw how he, per, he performed miraculous acts of God, acts of healing, acts of ca- casting out demons. They saw how popular he was with the people, how the people hung on every word and how he taught them with authority that had never seen before. They saw all of this, the people flocking after Jesus, and they said in our hearts, in their hearts, I want that. I want what Jesus has. I want 
his inheritance. And so they made plans to arrest him and to find the opportune time to kill him. In two short days, their plan would be quote-unquote successful because in two days they would finally arrest him with the help of Judas and they would execute him on the cross. And as we learned in this parable, this was the last straw for the owner. This was the very last act of patience that he, um, that he could hold on to. And things would change immediately after this moment. You see, the Israel had been rejecting all of the prophets that had come before him. And now they rejected the heir, the very son of God. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the very first martyr in the church, he actually preached a sermon or he, he, he spoke in the very last moments of his life about this very topic, about the Israel, Israel's leader rejecting the, all the prophets and eventually the Son of God. And he puts it well in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, when he says to all the people or to all the Pharisees and the leaders, he says, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You see, the these current leaders of Israel, they were following in the footsteps of their fathers, of the other or rebellious leaders and uh, priests before them. But they would take it to a whole new level, and they would kill Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. So Jesus asks that question once again, and I'll repeat it. He asks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus says that this vineyard, this kingdom of God, will be taken away from these tenants, and these tenants would be destroyed. And it's a discipline, it's a punishment that Israel had never seen before. Uh, if you know Israel's history, you know that God had disciplined Israel before several times. Starting in the very beginning, right, the first generation, they spent 40 years in the wilderness and they died because they rebelled against God. The splitting of the kingdom, right, Israel and Judah being split, that was God's divine judgment against them. Exiled to Assyria and Babylon, once again, God's judgment. Even their Roman occupation in the time of Christ, this was all God's judgment and discipline for Israel. But this next judgment is a whole nother level. Not only would the nation of Israel be destroyed, but, God, or but Israel's status as God's chosen people, that would be taken away. You see, Israel, they had access to God, unique access to God. And they had the keys to the kingdom of God. Salvation was found through God's word, God's truth, which was found and bestowed upon, bestowed to Israel. God displayed great patience with them, but after the rejection of the Messiah, after the murder of Jesus Christ, all of that would be taken away. Now, our church does believe that Israel will one day be restored by the grace of God at the end of the world, but for now, they continue under God's judgment because of their rejection of the Messiah, right? Judaism, 
it's a dead religion now. Sure, there are people who adhere to this religion, but the truth is no longer found there. Access to God is no longer found there. Salvation is not found in Judaism. All of that has been taken away. Jesus has illustrated this judgment upon Israel already, actually, when, he, when we learned about when he cursed the fig tree. Right? The fig tree who, you know, he went to the tree, he wanted to find fruit on it, but there was no fruit. And so Jesus cursed that fig tree. Once again, that was an illustration of what was about to happen to Israel, that they, bear, that they bore no fruit, and so that tree would be withered and would be destroyed. In the next chapter, Mark 13, Jesus would predict the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse thir- or chapter 13, verse 1 says, And he came out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus predicted this physical destruction of Jerusalem that would happen a short 30 years after he went to heaven in 70 AD. And so their city of Jerusalem would be destroyed, their nation would be destroyed, and once again their status as God's chosen people would be taken away. Verse 9 also tells us, though, that this vineyard, this kingdom of God will actually be given to others. And who are these other people? It's actually the church. It's the church. It's the Gentiles, right? It's those who come to find their faith in Jesus Christ. And so now, right, as the church, we are God's chosen people. Access to God is through the church. It's through Scripture, of course. And as Christians, as those in the church, we have the truths of God here in our Bible. And so as a side point, right, we should feel grateful. It's one of, I guess, the silver linings, if you will, the rejection of Israel is that this church, us, we have been grafted in, and now, right, we have this special privilege before God. But anyways, going back to our passage, now in verse 10, once again, Jesus has ended the story, but he's still talking to the religious leaders, and he indicts them and he condemns them further by saying in verse 10, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus says one of his favorite phrases when he's condemning the Pharisees, and he says, have you not read this scripture? They're supposed to be the experts in the law, the experts in the Bible. And so when Jesus says that, that was offensive or intentionally offensive to them, but he's right. They didn't know their Bibles. And he actually quotes a couple of verses for, from Psalm 118, and those are the verses that we see in verses 10 and 11. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It's about the Messiah. It's about Christ. And it's a psalm that actually should be fresh on their minds. Because actually in the chapter before, the people, when during Jesus' triumphal entry, they were actually quoting from Psalm 118. You remember when Jesus came on a donkey and the people were waving their palm branches and putting their cloaks on the ground for his donkey to tread upon? They said the words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're calling him the Messiah. That's found in Psalm 118, verse 26. And so, have the Pharisees read the scripture? Absolutely. It says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. It references that the Messiah would actually be rejected by the people. 
the stone, once again, that the builders rejected. But even though this stone would be rejected, this stone would actually become a cornerstone. The cornerstone was the most important stone in a building project, right? It was, as the word says, it's the corner, right? It set the trajectory for all of the walls and all of the stones that would be laid above it. And so it was carefully crafted and shaped to be perfect. And so Jesus says that, he quotes this passage, which says that the Messiah would first be rejected, but then he would be exalted as the cornerstone. And all of this, of course, was the Lord's doing. So in quoting this passage, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, don't you guys know what the scripture says? Don't you know that the Messiah is going to be rejected by the people? That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were in the process of committing the ultimate rejection of the Messiah, and they should have known. And certainly by the great acts of Jesus and his own testimony, they knew who Jesus was in their hearts. Even though if they would never admit it, they knew it that he was the Messiah. But even though they realized that this parable was against them, and Jesus was right, that they were planning his murder that very day, they did not repent. They did not change. Instead, they actually wanted to accelerate their plan to kill Jesus. Verse 12 says, and they were seeking to arrest him. If they could, they would have arrested him at that very moment and brought him to that cross that very afternoon. But in verse 12 it says, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Right? They were still afraid of the people. Remember, the people is, they're the people that the Pharisees wanted to have influence over. And so the people, they still believed in Jesus and still, of course, considered him to be the Messiah. And so the Pharisees and the chief priests, they had to leave and go away and find another time. And so that brings us to the end of the parable and the story. But once again, right, this is a story about God's rejection of Israel because of their great sin. But it's also about God's patience. What I want to focus on for the rest of our time is thinking about, once again, how this parable applies to us. And specifically, the principle in front of us is that God's patience, even though it's incomprehensible, even though it's great and it's grand and it's amazing, Eventually, God's patience will end, and judgment will follow. God gave Israel all of the chances possible to repent, servant after servant, and they were experiencing God's patience throughout the generations. But eventually, that patience ended when they killed the Messiah. And it's the same for us. If you're not a believer today, you're not a Christian, you haven't repented of your sin you're under judgment right now. And you may not realize it. Even for us as Christians, we may look out into the world and people who um, are not Christians and we look at their life and it doesn't seem like they're under God's judgment. For you, if you're an unbeliever, you may look at your life and you may not feel an ounce of God's judgment over you right now. You look at your life and it's pretty good. Maybe you're in a good school, or maybe you have a great job and you have a great start to your career. Maybe you're in a great relationship with your boyfriend or with your girlfriend. You have your whole life in front of you to do what you want, and life's pretty good. And God's judgment, what's that? You don't see any of it right now. And sure, you hear the messages, you know about sin. 
You may tell that occasional white lie at, at work. You might watch some pornography on the side. You might love money. You may be jealous of people's stuff. You're certainly not under God's judgment. You come to church. You hear the calls to repent from the message, but you continue on in your sin. And you think that through all of this that you're not under God's judgment. But I'm here tonight to tell you that you're wrong. You're wrong. You see, the reason why you don't feel like you're under God's judgment right now and why your life seems good on the surface is because God is patient with you now. Romans 2 verse 4 says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The reason why you don't feel like you're under judgment the, real life, the reason why it seems like your life is good right now is because God is being patient with you. That God is giving you a chance to repent right now. But as this verse tells us, if you continue in your sin, if you continue to rebel against the creator who gave you life and breath and all that you have, if you continue to refuse God's free offer of forgiveness and mercy, if you reject Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who spilled his blood for you, and you do this over and over and over again, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy you. You see this verse in Romans, it tells us that every day you reject Christ. Every day you live in your sin, you are storing up more and more wrath upon yourself. And one day God will unleash this wrath upon your soul and you will be sent to hell for eternity. That's what you have in front of you. That's what your future holds and we don't know when that day will be. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. It can be 10 years from now. We don't know. But what we do know now is that right here, if you are living and you are breathing, God is being patient with you tonight. We need to learn from this parable of the tenants. Learn that God is being patient with you in illogical, incomprehensible ways. And this patience is not something that you can take advantage of, that you can live on your life and your sin. But God's patience is meant to bring you to repentance. You see, today, today is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. If you're living and you're breathing, today is when God's arms are open wide, when the gates of heaven are open wide for you to walk in, to believe in Christ, to place your faith in him for forgiveness, and to enjoy his grace forever. Today is that day. And if you've done this already, you've already repented of your sins, it's a great day. It's a great day to remember that all of that was because of God's grace and his kindness and his love toward you. And so we can rejoice knowing that we're not under sin, we're not under God's judgment anymore, but we're under grace, and that's all because of God. So will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, as we 
learned about this parable, really about the judgment of Israel, Lord, I pray that you would help us to actually see the principles that are here about your patience, that you are patient with each one of us. If we have life tonight, it's because of your patience and your kindness. It's a life that we do not deserve because of our sin. Look, oh Lord, I pray for those who are unsaved tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts, convict them of their sin. I pray that they would see your kindness and your patience with them right now, and I pray that you would spare them from the wrath that it is to come, because you're a good God, and you are worthy of their praise. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, so got a couple of discussion questions for you guys when we break up. The first one here is, you know, reflecting on your own conversion, what is the specific way that God displayed his patience with you, right? I talked about that a little bit in, in the sermon about myself. I want you to think of how God was patient with you. Maybe it was a person, an individual, maybe it was through some other means, but God was patient and with you somehow. It would be great if you could share and really praise God for that in your groups. And then number two is the one where you got to look within, right, and maybe convicting. In what ways might you be taking advantage of God's patience today? What can you do to change? What, can you, what sin or attitude can you repent of? All right, thank you. And I'll pass it back to Alex.